0: Today, we're going to be looking in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, Paul's continuing to deal with an issue uh, of people who are basically arguing with him and with the church that Christ isn't enough, that you need Jesus, but you also need something else added to it. It reminds me, especially the content of, of Galatians chapter 2 that we'll read in a little bit, it reminds me of what oftentimes perplexes us about the issue. The Israelites as they came out of Egypt, because we we see Moses who who leads that band of Israelites out of Egypt after the miraculous movement of God who sent the ten plagues upon them and and allowed them to gather a lot of of, of goods to take with them gold and silver and all kinds of things that that they had gathered from the Egyptians around them. He, he sent the last plague uh, that that killed the firstborn born of the Egyptian families, but spared theirs. And and so they they finally, the the Pharaoh tells them, just get out, go, leave. So the Egyptians gather all of their stuff after the Passover and they they head out and they get to the edge of the Red Sea and they're trapped. The Red Sea's in front of them, there's mountains on either side, and the Egyptian army has decided they're not going to let them out and they're coming behind them. And what... After all of the great things God did and all the miraculous work of God, what is it that the Israelites do? Scripture says, they said to Moses, is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you've taken us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what you we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we might be slaves to the Egyptians. It'd be better for us to be slaves... To die out here. They completely lost faith. They, they completely, it's as though they could not even remember what God had just done a few days ago. And the, the issue with the Israelites is this isn't the last time. God parted the Red Sea. He, he, a wind blew across from the desert across the, the Red Sea to harden the ground. All the, the Israelites went across. And when the Egyptian army tried to follow them, you know the story. God let the way the, the, the Red Sea crash back in on top of them, destroying the Egyptian army. They came across the Red Sea, miraculously delivered from the Egyptians, and then ran out of water. And what they start doing? Why don't we just go back and be slaves again in Egypt? What are we going to do? Die out here in the desert? You just saw God part the Red Sea, and you're griping about not having enough fun. Don't you think He can provide? Now, the deal is, we look at that, and we're going, how in the world do they not get it? Well, it's part of it's because we know the end of the story, right? We we know how it ends. We've read how it ends. We're not living it. We're not in the middle of it like they were. They didn't know the end of the story. They didn't see how it was going to fully work itself out. But you know what? Christians have been doing the same thing. God offered you and I an incredible gift of grace when he sent his son to take on all of your sin and all of my sin to wear my sin and take it to the cross and die on the cross as a sacrifice for my sin so that that at that point he offers me a gift of eternal life all that he's asking is for me to believe and to follow him. Christ alone. Nothing else. Christ alone is enough. Jesus crucified. Jesus raised. Jesus is coming back. However you want to put it, it's all about Jesus. Christ alone is enough. In John 14, the night before Jesus died, he's talking to his disciples who they've gotten worried because they know something's up. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes on to explain uh, how he's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to come again to receive them to themselves. And of course, you have Thomas. Wait a minute. We don't know where you're going. How are we going to know how to get there? We need a map. We need some instructions. Jesus said, no, you don't. You need me. Me. Christ alone is enough. Anything that you attach to faith and trust in the grace, the the blood that Jesus shed, anything that you attach to Jesus as necessary for eternal life or for life for that matter is the same as saying Jesus' death was necessary but not enough. Paul is here to argue. I'm here to 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 point back to Paul's teaching and God's word that Jesus was not only necessary, Jesus is enough. And all that we have to do is trust Christ as he leads us through the desert, as he leads us through the, the troubled waters. Whether he has us out on a boat in the middle of a, of a storm, if he's in the boat with you, you're gonna be okay. Christ Alone is enough. It's not Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus tithing is not going to save you. It's Jesus. He is our hope. He is all we need. As you walk in a relationship with Jesus, you're going to want to walk in obedience with him. And there's going to be fruit that comes out of your life. You're going to see all kinds of changes in your life, but it's not because you tried real hard to change, it's because you tried real hard to focus your attention and follow Jesus. And even when you failed and you were trusting in the Spirit of God who dwells in you, you'll find that Christ is enough. That's the problem Paul was having in Galatians. Let's go ahead and read Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10 as our text for the day as we continue to walk through the book of Galatians. Remember, this is Paul's first letter. In fact, I believe it is the first letter ever recorded of all the New Testament books. Galatians was written uh, after he, he started the Galatian churches after his first missionary journey, probably somewhere in the time frame of around 48 A.D. That's important that we nail down some time links here in a little bit, uh, but you're gonna see as soon as we begin to read. So keep that in mind. This was his first letter written, and he's dealing with those early on in the life of the church. So you're talking about less than 20 years after Jesus died and rose again, who are struggling with this idea that Jesus and his grace is enough. You've got some Jews going, well, wait a minute, Jesus was a Jew, maybe you gotta be a Jew first. Uh, you know, to be a Jew, you've got to be circumcised. Maybe you've got to be circumcised first. Maybe you've got to do this first. Uh, Paul's dealing with that issue as he takes the gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles in particular. So he comes here in, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, There, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. "'Taking Titus along also, I went up according to the revelation "'and presented to them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles, "'but privately to those who recognized the leaders. "'I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. "'But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, "'even though he was a Greek. "'This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks "'to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus.'" in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to those people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. From now, uh, now, from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised." They also ask that we remember the poor, which I'd made every effort to do. So Paul here is just simply laying out some of the struggles that he's had with those who, as he says, infiltrated their ranks. Now, I want to remind you where Paul is and what's been going on at this point. When Paul writes this after 14 years, there are some questions about where this fits into the timeline that we see in the book of Acts. Now, if you are in one of our growth groups, I'm going to put in another plug. You are also walking through this timeline in Acts right now. You have seen Paul's conversion. Uh, You first seen him last week when he was a, a part of the problem In Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, now you've seen his conversion, you've seen uh, Paul begin to minister in Acts chapter 9. Next week, you're going to study what happened after that. After years, Paul had gone off into the desert, Uh, he had spent some time out there getting to know the Lord, he'd come back at some point and been introduced to Peter and a couple of the other leaders. Uh, About three years, we saw this last week, about about three years after he was converted, he came back to Jerusalem, and then he disappeared again, and he was ministering. Now, sharing the gospel out in Asia, in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas goes and finds Paul. It's it's not as though he didn't know where he was. He goes to Tarsus and finds Paul. What had happened, because of all the persecution in the church, Christians got scattered. They were driven out of Jerusalem. They they were scattered all over the known world. And one of the places there was a large gathering of Christians was in Antioch. And as that church in Antioch began to grow, more and more Christians were getting saved. Many of them were Gentiles, and they didn't know the background. They didn't know the Scripture. Remember, the Scripture at that point is Old Testament. So they asked Barnabas, the the Jerusalem church actually sent Barnabas up to Antioch to pastor. Barnabas gets up there and goes, whoa, wait a minute, this thing's going crazy. There's too many here. I can't handle this on my own. So he sends for Paul. Paul was over at Tarsus at that time. Paul comes back to Antioch and he begins to serve as co-pastor in the church at Antioch. And this is what we find at the end of Acts chapter 11. At the end of Acts chapter 11, verse 25 says, then when he went to Tarsus to search for Saul and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church, taught large numbers and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days... Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there'd be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. That took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. So... What's happening is they, you've got a, at least some connection between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch, and some of the the leaders, some of the preachers from from Jerusalem had come down. Agabus is one of the key leaders of that, one of these prophets, and were teaching, preaching there in Antioch with Paul and and Barnabas who were serving as pastors there in Antioch, and uh, as as. as as Agabus comes down at some point, he he prophesies, he declares that there's a a famine that's about to come across the whole Roman empire. And so because of that, Paul and Barnabas, probably as leaders of the Jerusalem church, took up this collection to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Well, why would they do that? Well, first of all, you you have a, a clear connection. In a lot of ways, the Jerusalem church was the mother church. Uh, that's where, that's where the church started. It was Acts 2. That, that's, that's where God began. And, and so you have this connection. So these, these believers in Antioch that, that had more means, more income, wanted to support their brothers and sisters in Christ back in Judea and in Jerusalem. And so they took up a collection. And when they did that, they sent that collection in verse 30 of Acts 11, sent it by means of Barnabas and Saul. So Paul, Saul, and Barnabas at that point took the collection from Antioch back to Jerusalem. Most of the scholars I trust believe that that's the meeting that we find in Galatians chapter 2 would have taken place somewhere around 46 AD, uh, 14 years or so after Paul's uh, conversion experience, and, and, and as the Jews would count that time, okay? So 46, 47 AD, right in that time frame, Paul comes back uh, to Jerusalem. And while he's there, he discusses this problem that they're having with those Judaizers, those who are saying that Jesus isn't enough that you got to become a Jew first to be saved. And Paul sees it as a false gospel. And and in fact, what he understands is if you start preaching that you've got to do something else to be saved besides put your faith and trust in Christ and follow him, you're going to end up right back in legalism. You're going to end up right back in Jerusalem. You're going to end up adding more and more and more rules and regulations in, in a And for Paul, the issue is it minimizes what Christ did on the cross. The bottom line is, can you do anything to save yourself? No, you can't. Scripture's clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 lay that out in a a magnificent way. Paul does there. It's his his doctrine of, of, of sin. He says that, that those who are, uh, who are religious people, those who have been religious Jews, those who had the value of, of, of following Yahweh, Jehovah God, who had his word, they found that the, all the sacrifices, all of the, all, all of the religion, all of, uh, all of their, their cleansing procedures, all of that was not enough to save them. Religious people are still condemned by their sin to eternal death because you cannot do enough good deeds to measure up to the holiness of God. And then in Romans uh, chapter 1 through 3, he also addresses the issue of secular people. And he said, and then you have those people who don't believe in God And, and they're condemned by their sin also. And so he sums it all up in Romans chapter 3 and says, you know what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus who offers us eternal life. And then he goes on to expand through Romans 4, 5, and 6 through some illustrations and through some continued teaching that in Christ, while we were in our sin, God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that he could take our sins upon his back and become the propitiation for our sin. He could become the sacrifice for your sin and my sin. We could be cleansed of our sin through Jesus. And so you kind of come to a concluding statement in Romans 6, 23, the last verse of Romans 6, 20, uh, of Romans 6 where he says that the, the, the wages of sin is death. Doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Doesn't matter if you go to church all the time or not. Doesn't matter if you're Baptist or not. It doesn't matter if you can check off all the things on your tithing card or not. It doesn't matter. If you're religious, the wages of sin is death. If you're not religious, the wages of sin is death. But but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is through Christ and Christ alone. That's the message that Paul finds to be in peril anytime that someone starts adding to the gospel. And Paul would argue, and we talked about this already, because this is going to be a theme the first couple chapters of, of Galatians. Paul argued that any other gospel than the pure gospel of Jesus Christ is a false gospel. It's not true. And it will get you nowhere. So a couple things that I want to walk through this text quickly. First of all, how are we going to avoid going back into legalism? Because see, even as I grew up in a Baptist church, I was was told, I, I was led to faith by the Roman road. Wages of sin is death, gift of God's eternal life. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. For all who confess and believe in Jesus are saved, Romans 10. Nine, ten, thirteen. I remember the pastor sitting with me down on the on the the side of the stage and opening his Bible and pointing those verses out to me. And as a twelve-year-old boy, I, I believed it, and I put my faith and trust in Christ, and I confessed Him as my Lord, and I followed through by by uh, by being baptized to show to show the whole world that I was following Christ. I was excited about that, but it wasn't very long before I got the message. Okay, now that you're saved, if you're going to be a good Christian, you and this is no joke, okay, you know, what I'm not that old. It wasn't that long ago. But if you're going to be a good Christian, you can't, I was in seventh grade going to eighth grade, you, you can't go to dances. Where's that in the Bible? Well, it doesn't matter, you're Baptist, you can't go to dances. I don't know if you're saved. Hey, you're not supposed to play cards anymore. Well, you, mean, you mean poker for gambling? Oh, no, no, no. You're not supposed to gamble, but not just gambling. You're not supposed to play cards. Where's that in the Bible? I couldn't find that either. I, I, I literally had a, had a list of things that I was given that now that you've made this profession, you've got to do these things. And we're going to get to that in Galatians chapter 3 because Paul tells the Galatians, if you have that attitude, you're idiots. You couldn't save yourself. You can't live this Christian life on your own quit trying follow Jesus follow Jesus let him be your guide don't worry about the rules and regulations worry about Jesus he's enough and so what is it Paul's worried about that he doesn't want to see these people who he is out sharing the gospel with enslaved again by laws by rules and regulations because here's what will happen once that happens it doesn't take long before people to start saying oh wait a minute If you're truly going to be a Christian, you have to obey these rules. If you're going to be saved, you have to obey these rules. Paul was right. They didn't get very far into church history before great scholars of the faith began to develop programs by which you could gain God's favor. You could gain his grace. They called it sacraments. Sacraments. You say enough prayer, you gain a little bit of grace. You you, you tithe, you gain a little bit of grace. You, you, You regularly attend mass and take the Lord's Supper and you go through confirmation and you gain a little bit of grace. And if you gain enough grace, then if your grace cup is filled up, then when you die, you get to go right to be with God, but if your grace cup isn't full, then you go to a holding pen somewhere where they sort the sheep and the goats Paul was right if you let the enemy begin to have an inch and begin to begin to add anything to Jesus all of a sudden you put man's stamp on grace In that system, then priests and bishops, and ultimately, for a thousand years of church history, the ultimate dispenser of grace was the Pope. So you put a man in charge of distributing the grace of God as though Jesus isn't enough. Paul doesn't want the church to go down that road. Paul wants the church to be reminded that Jesus is enough. Faith and trust in Christ is all that's necessary for salvation. So how does he deal with that? Well, first, when he makes this trip up to bring the relief offering to Jerusalem, he meets with other trusted believers. I I just want us to look at this very quickly. How are we going to avoid legalism shackles And and there's a lot of directions I could go with this. There's some some other passages I want to pull in. I want to avoid that. I just want to look at Galatians 2 and see what Paul did here. Because what Paul did is he says, following a revelation, verse 2, according to revelation, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. So something triggered Paul. Something led Paul. Paul calls it a a revelation here. This is the second time he calls it a revelation. Uh, he referred to a revel- the revelation that he received when he was in the desert as the Spirit began to speak to him about what the gospel was in the first place. So so somehow, whether... Now, some scholars will say, well, that revelation could have very well been when Agabus came to Antioch, began to teach that while he was there, uh, God spoke to Paul and said, hey, now's the time to go up and talk to the, the leaders in Jerusalem about it. But, But because of something inside of him, the Holy Spirit... Encourage Paul to go up and speak to these other religious leaders to get together with them because for 13 years or so, 14 years, Paul had been out on his own. Uh, not quite that much because he'd been with Barnabas teaching there at Antioch, but this gave he and Barnabas an opportunity to go and, and talk with Peter and James and John about the gospel. And you see value in this of, of the religious leaders. Just getting together to share the gospel together. Now, for me, of course, preaching this this morning, I immediately think of what God just did for our church on Friday night and Saturday when uh, Nathan and I, as as, uh, staff pastors, uh, got together with four of our interns and about nine of our deacons out at Riverbend. And we spent time studying God's Word being challenged by God's Word, worshiping together, looking at how to better serve our church family. And and I feel like that I came away from that time encouraged, built up, sharpened, that I can be a better pastor. And I hope that every one of our deacons and and each of the four interns that went with us felt the same way because we'd come together with other believers, leaders in the body of Christ, and, and sharpened our tools for the gospel. And I feel like that that's part of what Paul is, is is accomplishing here. He now gathers together with other key leaders, and he's careful because he wants the Galatians to understand, look, I didn't get my gospel from somebody. The gospel comes from God, the gospel comes from his word. The gospel doesn't come from Peter. The gospel didn't come from James. The gospel didn't come from John. The the gospel comes from Jesus. It comes from God. You can find it in the Old Testament. That's why he uses all of those illustrations. You see that pointing to Jesus all along. So Paul's careful to say here, not that I got it from them, but as we gathered together, we found unity. The, The gospel that I was preaching is the gospel that they were preaching, And so there was a sharpening, there there was a, a camaraderie, there was a sharing of a common testimony about what Jesus had done and what Jesus was doing. He was doing it differently in Jerusalem than he was doing it out there among the Gentiles in Antioch, but he was still saving lost souls through the power of the gospel, and they were preaching the same gospel. And so he he affirmed the ministry, he affirmed the gospel as he gathered together with Barnabas, who was key leader of the church, with Peter and James and John. And so uh, one of the keys, I think, applications for us is is it just reminds us of how important it is not to try to be Lone Ranger Christians. Paul, Paul, after all of this time he spent out in the desert with the Lord alone and was confident of of the ministry that he had, was confident of the gospel he was going to preach, Paul... The great missionary to the Gentiles, yes, that Paul found it necessary to get together with other believers, to to study together, and to talk about the gospel, and to find encouragement and strength and sharpening. How much more so do I need to do that? It it reminds me as a pastor that I don't need to be out there on my own trying to do this on my own. I, I have a friend, Darren Biles, I love that guy. He and I can get together and talk about God's word, and I always come away excited. I always come away better for it. But if we're out there on our own, isolated, we miss those opportunities. And if Paul as a missionary did that, how, I need to do that. And if I need to do that as a pastor, how much more do every one of us need to do that? To gather together with other believers and talk about Jesus, to worship Jesus. And so Paul, he affirms, it was encouraging to him. He didn't learn anything from them, what he says. I didn't gain anything. In verse 6, they didn't add anything to me. And what he means by that is he didn't get a new gospel. He just simply found out that he was encouraged because he found out we're all on the same page. And sometimes that's one of the most beautiful things that you can see because you can be off here doing your thing and you're off there doing your thing uh, and you're doing a little bit differently and you you start questioning one another and then you come together and go, wait a minute, we're on the same team. The second thing that I want you to see, the big point here is Paul understood the enemy strategies and we need to understand the enemy's strategies. You see him flesh that out, especially here in uh, verse three, four and five. It begins really in verse 3 with this kind of a short testimony. He says, not even Titus. Titus was a Greek. Titus was somebody that Paul had led to the Lord, that was serving along with Paul. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So here he's using Titus as an example. It's interesting that that the text tells us that Paul and Barnabas went up, but he takes Titus with him. Why? Some scholars believe it's because Titus is, is probably the best example he has of a born again maturing serving gentile greek believer so when they go up to jerusalem with the offering to present the offering to the to the jerusalem church they look at him and see where he is in his walk and they go why the heck would we make him get circumcised that has nothing to do with, with his uh, faith in Christ. It's clearly God's going to work through Titus. He's born again. He doesn't need circumcision. And so Paul says, when, when the church and the leaders got to know Titus, they got it. They didn't even compel Titus, who was a Greek. They didn't even say, oh, well, yeah, you know, you really need to get circumcised. And the question comes up because there's one point where Paul has Timothy get circumcised. And, and, and I liken it to this because I, I got this question from one, one of our growth group leaders uh, a little while back. Now, I like the question because it emphasizes something that's important to us. Peter didn't get circumcised because he had to. Peter got, Peter got circumcised. So that, I mean, not Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Timothy. He got circumcised so that it would not be an impediment to him sharing the gospel some of the places he was going. It's kind of like when Paul said, yeah, you can eat that meat that's been sacrificed titles, but if it's going to impede your witness, don't do it. What's more important at that point, your freedom or the gospel? The gospel is more important. So in his obedience to Christ, not because he had to do it for salvation or because it made him a better Christian, but because he could could do what God had called him to do, Timothy followed through. Titus wasn't compelled to. There was no law one way or the other. There's no rule or regulation that made a difference one way or the other. The only law was Christ. I'm going to follow Christ and go where he calls me to go. He calls me to go here, I'm going to go here. He calls me to go there, I'm going to go there. Because he's Lord. It wasn't a law that made him do it. It wasn't a law that prevented Titus from doing it. In this case, they needed the example of Titus, the uncircumcised Greek, before the church of Jerusalem for for the church of Jerusalem to get it. And God used him so that they did. The, the, The issue is the gospel. And so... After that little testimony here in verse 4 and 5, he says, this matter arose. Why did that even come up? Who even brings it up? I've got questions that I won't approach in a place like this. Who's going to go ask Titus? This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. First thing I want you to see here is that the enemy... Infiltrated the church. Satan sent in guys who acted like Christians, who on the front looked like Christians, but they believed in a false gospel. And they became part of the church. They infiltrated the body. Satan has been doing that. He, he was doing it then. He's doing it now. There'll be people. That on the outside, because they can look like a Christian, put on the face of a Christian, they look like brothers, but they're false brothers. And one of the things that we struggle with in the church is, is what do you do with that? Well, Jesus gave us pretty clear instructions on that because he used the parable of the wheat and the tares to his disciples. He said, there's going to come a time where, where good seed has been sowed. And an enemy comes in and he sows tares among the wheat. And when the tares and the wheat come up, you can't tell which one's which. And he said, the last thing that the farmer's going to do is go in and pull up the tares because it's also going to pull up the wheat. What he has to do is he has to wait till the harvest. Let the Lord of the harvest sort out what was wheat and what was tares. And so there's great advice in that for the church. We need to be extremely cautious about looking around and saying, you're a false brother. You're a false brother. Because you may not know the only there's only one that knows for sure I think there's sometimes that that the fruit becomes clear over time and I think that one of the keys for Paul the reason that Paul probably allowed them in the church in the first place because he didn't know they were false but what helped him know for sure is when they started preaching a false gospel if somebody's preaching a false gospel they're adding anything to Jesus that's enough to deal with it. So Paul says they infiltrated the church. They they were there to spy out the freedom that Christ offers. There's people that will come into the church, and they'll start saying, well, you know, I know that, that the Bible says Jesus is not, but you also need to do, and they start making the list for you. Be cautious of anybody who starts giving you that list. Have you ever had anybody come up to you and say, The Lord has told me that you're supposed to. Anytime somebody tells me that, I pray about it. But I'm pretty quick to say, well, the Lord hasn't told me that yet. If you can show me in his word where he's told me that, I'm going to put a whole lot more weight in it. But if you're just speaking a word over me, or you're just declaring it to me, because you had bad sausage last night and had a dream. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to accept that. But, but people will, will come into the church and they'll start adding legalistic requirements. And that's what, that was one of the tools of Satan here. And they do it for a specific purpose, Paul says. They did it in order to enslave us they did it so that we would go back to living under the law. Maybe not the same law, but it's just a new law. It's a law that's been baptized, <laughs> Christianized law. The, 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 the sacramental system that, that reigned over the majority of the church through the Holy Roman Catholic Church from 400 AD until until Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, That sacrificial system was not the same as the Old Testament law, but in a lot of ways it was just baptized law. It was man's effort to reach God through going through the motions. And you can't, Jesus is the only hope. In Christ alone, we'll find our freedom. And so then we have, toward the end of this passage, I just want to give you what I see from verse 9 down, a strategy for preserving the gospel. First one that we see here is stand firm on the true gospel. Verse 5, Paul says, we did not give up. And submit to those people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Take a stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's recorded in the word of God. And don't budge. Preach the gospel. Teach the gospel. Review the gospel. Declare the gospel. The gospel is enough Stand firm on the gospel. And if we'll stand firm on the gospel and not give an inch, not add anything or take away anything to the gospel that we see in the word of God, in particular, and you look through the death, burial, resurrection, the promise of the return of Christ, that's enough. Hold to it and stand firm. If if you give an inch, if you allow legalism in the door, You've given man the opportunity to say, okay, sure, we've got the gospel, but you also have to, and then the checklist begins. And then we become enslaved again to a legalistic system that is not a gospel at all. It's not good news at all. It's a man's program for trying to reach God again, and you don't have to get very far down that road until you forget Jesus and focus on the program. Understand our calling. Now, this is this is how Paul and Peter begin to deal with it because I, I think I'm gonna sound like Dr. Rainey in one of the sermons I've been listening to lately. I think that part of what's going on here is the Gentiles, reaching the Gentiles with the gospel required not a different message, but some different techniques than reaching the Jews with the gospel. And God had called Peter primarily to reach the un, the circumcised Jews, I'm sorry, with the gospel. That was his job. And he'd called Paul, his primary job was to reach Gentiles with the gospel. Not that Paul wouldn't share the gospel with the Jews when he met him in the synagogue out in, in Lystra, or that Peter wasn't going to run into some, some, uh, some, uh, Greeks in, in, in and around Judea. But his primary purpose was to reach the Jews. His primary purpose was to reach the Gentiles. And so with that said, what they're going to focus on, what they're going to major on, maybe the text that they're going to use from the Old Testament to preach the gospel may be a little bit different. And so Paul and Peter needed to understand their calling. Peter wasn't called to go to the Gentiles. Paul wasn't called to go to the Jews in Jerusalem. Understand your calling because then when you understand your calling, you're going to understand that, that I'm going to do it a little bit different than he is. I'm going, to, I'm going to share it a little bit different than he is. You know, here's a very simplistic, overly simplistic illustration of that. When we were going to Peru on a regular basis to, uh, to work with Quentin and Gina Roberts down there, the IMB missionaries, and we were given opportunities. I was given opportunities to preach uh, in, in a couple of churches down there in Peru. We were, we were serving in the... Uh, in nursing homes we were serving in prisons down there we were serving in the uh, the, the children's homes orphanages while we were serving uh, especially in my teaching and preaching I was warned and, and this is a great example one of the things that pastors tend to do this time of year you know there's a couple big football games coming up today it was tempting for pastors to use football illustrations if you try to use a football illustration you talk about football in Peru They're going to think you're crazy because you're not making sense because football to them is soccer and it's a whole different game than American football. And so you cannot share the gospel using American football illustration in Peru. You got to understand your calling. You got to understand where God has sent you and to whom God has sent you. And so you're going to to adjust how you present the gospel. Paul and Peter were, were probably using a little bit different language when they shared the gospel with circumcised people and they were when they were sharing the gospel with uncircumcised people. Just like you're going to have to use a little bit of a different language if you're sharing the gospel in prison, like some of our men had over and over, or you're sharing the gospel uh, down here in the mall. Your, your language is going to be a little bit different. And, and, and one of the things that, that Peter and James learned about this when Barnabas and Paul came and met with them is, look, God has given me a calling and we need to steadfastly pursue our calling. And one of the parts that's important about steadfastly pursuing my calling is to stay in my lane. Paul did not need to be telling Peter how to share the gospel Peter did not need, be, need to be telling Barnabas how to share the gospel with the uncircumcised. It was clear that God had given them the same gospel to take to two different types of people and it was going to be presented in a little bit different way. If they would stay in their lane and take care of their business, the kingdom of God was going to grow and the gospel was going to be spread and God was going to be glorified. But what happens so many times, a guy that's over here supposedly called of God and serving in his little role, starts looking back over his shoulder. And maybe that guy's having more success or he's having less success. So well, maybe he wants to try to copy him or maybe he wants to go over and tell this guy how he's doing it wrong. And that does nothing but create disunity. If we will, what, what Paul and Peter and James and John and Barnabas learned, it seems, is to stay in their lane. So Paul says here, on the contrary, they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, and since the one at work in Peter, hear that, the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. They recognized when they got together, though they were doing things a little bit differently and reaching different people, it was the same God the same spirit that was at work in them declaring the same gospel. One of the things that will help us avoid legalism shackles is quit telling the other guy that he needs to do it like you. He needs to do it according to God's word. If it's unscriptural, if it's a different gospel, that's something else. But Paul went from dealing with false brothers who were preaching a different gospel to dealing with true brothers who are preaching the same gospel in a different way to different people. There's a difference. You hear that? There's a difference. And then what they learned to do was celebrate their differences with grace for the glory of God. When James, Cephas, and John, and those those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And Barnabas agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. If we will give each other grace as we go out and do the work of God, fulfilling the purpose that he's called each one of us individually, staying in our lane God will receive the glory for it and his kingdom will grow. That's how you stay away from legalism. Remember where it begins though. It has to be rooted steadfastly, standing firm in the true gospel of God's word. Nothing added, nothing taken away. That's what we find in his word. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga, or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.